Apathy is the one thing that none of us can afford. And if you could encourage them to understand that, uh, boy, a lot of young people in, in 68, I can assure you, to change the world. A lot of young people getting out there and voting today can if they will. I'm Evan Smith, the CEO of the Texas Tribune, and you're listening to Conversations with the Texas Tribune, a rebroadcast of the Tribune's extended sit-downs with the most interesting, influential, and iconic figures in politics and public policy. This week, 50 years after 1968, how the tumultuous events of that extraordinary year shaped us as a country and a community and a democracy. This extraordinary discussion about how far we've come and how far we still have to go was an eagerly anticipated session at the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. Rick Hertzberg of The New Yorker led a panel featuring MSNBC hosts and best-selling authors Lawrence O'Donnell and Chris Matthews, legendary broadcast journalist Dan Rather, and LBJ's youngest daughter, Lucy Baines Johnson. Their conversation, titled simply 1968, was recorded live at Central Presbyterian Church in Austin on September 28, 2018. Conversations with the Texas Tribune is presented by Walmart. As the state's largest private employer with nearly 170,000 Texas associates, Walmart was proud to sponsor the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. At the heart of Walmart's culture is a commitment to serving the needs of customers and communities we call home. Learn more about Walmart's impact in Texas at corporate.walmart.com. And by the Texas Tech University System, a problem-solving institution that produces leaders who act on bold initiatives to improve lives. More at texastech.edu. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. Power to the people. Um, uh, right on. Welcome to 1968. Um, an extraordinary year, uh, a year which, which in 1968, in 1968, 50 years earlier than that was 1918. So it's for us, it's a little hard probably for us to imagine what it's like now for you, for you young people, younger people to think about 68. We were actually there. We were, we were mostly the age that many of you are. And, and now we're thinking about it. We've got a wonderful panel to talk about it. We've, we've, we've got Lucy Vaines Johnson who, as you know, was the... <laughs> a, a, pr a proud Texan, by definition. Uh, Chris Matthews, my old friend, comrade. <laughs> Dan Rather, the iconic television newsman. And Lawrence O'Donnell, who has just come out with an extraordinarily wonderful book about 1968, a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. He doesn't, he doesn't just look good, he writes good. 
1968. Um, where were you? Where were you? Maybe starting with, with you, Lucy. Where were you in 1968? Physically, spiritually, politically? Well, physically, I was a yo-yo in 1968. Uh, my former husband, the father of my children, was a man who did not have to go, but volunteered to go to Vietnam. Uh, in contrast to what uh, many people think, he, uh, he was in the uh, National Guard long before I ever knew him. Uh, and uh, so he could have gotten a deferment if, uh, through that and through his getting a master's degree program. But instead, he chose to volunteer. So I was part of the time in um, Austin in our home and part of my time in the White House just as women have gone home to mama and daddy since the beginning of time when their husbands go away to war. Um, spiritually, I was uh, my father's daughter mm -hmm. and so many people when they think of the Vietnam War they say it's LBJ's war. Well, I'm here to tell you, no one in the world wanted that war less than Lyndon Johnson because his domestic policy that meant so much to an agenda he'd worked for all his life was uh, uh, so much under siege as a result of it. And uh, both of his daughters' husbands were in the war theater, the last of of uh, the children of uh, a president to actually go to war when the president was living in the White House. Uh, and uh, then uh, spiritually, um, I am a Roman Catholic convert. Uh, and I'll tell you one brief and final story, because you have many other people to ask who have something uh, unique and important to contribute. But uh, my father would get up on Sunday mornings, and he would go to his own church, the Christian church. And then after that, he would go at 11 o'clock to church with my mother, and then after that, uh, he would volunteer to go to church with me while my husband was in Nam. And I'd say to him, Daddy, no, you need to go home and listen to Face the Nation or, or meet the press. <laughs> we didn't have the capacity to tape it back then. And uh, he, I said, I'm, I'm okay, Daddy, you don't need to go with me. And he'd say, Lucy, you don't understand. When you're in my position, you need all the help that you can get. <laughs> I want to go because you're my little girl. I want to go because the weight is, of the world is on you too. You're trying to raise this little boy by yourself. But I want to go because I need all the help I can get. Let's go together. How about you, Chris? Where were you? Well, I, uh, I was at uh, the University of North Carolina uh, that fall. And to me, 1968 began in uh, September that year. Uh, there was a lot of anti-war meetings. I'd go to meetings with people who were uh, fashionably left. Uh, they used the word fascist in a way I'd never heard before. Not about Mussolini, but about our own leaders in, country, in the government. Uh, they would yell out, no pictures, no photography here. They were all afraid of Jager Hoover. I went to the march on the Pentagon in October of 67. Uh, that sort of began the year. Then I began 
like a lot of us, romanticizing about Eugene McCarthy running for president. We were thrilled at that prospect. And then, of course, he ran in New Hampshire, and I'd watch Cronkite and Servrite, the student union, every night, watching and cheering for them in New Hampshire. And then the Tet Offensive, of course, came, and I realized we weren't going to win the war. I think most people realized when Westmoreland, our commander over there, said, I need another quarter million troops. He didn't have a plan for winning. He may have said he thought he did, but he didn't have a plan to win. It was just more troops. And we weren't going to end the war. And uh, I rooted for uh, McCarthy, then I rooted for Bobby, because I realized Bobby was the only one that could win. I was in Montreal in June. Uh, when I turned on the radio at 3 o'clock in the morning to see who had won the California primary, I heard what I thought was a reprise, a recording of Dallas. Mm. I thought it was they were playing an old record of what had happened in Dallas, and it was Bobby killed or shot at that point. I said, here we go. And uh, of course, I was in Montreal because one of my pals was looking for a job up there because he wanted to emigrate. That's what the mood was in those days. And by the end of the summer, I was watching the convention, the most exciting television I've ever seen in my life, the Democratic convention in Chicago. I watched every minute of it with Cronkite. And then um, by that September, I was on my way to Africa in the Peace Corps. I want to say something about the anti-war movement, and, and I read Lawrence's beautifully written book. And it captures some of the craziness of the yippies, of A.B. Hoffman and people like that. And there was that. But even in those anti-war crowds at the March on the Pentagon, which Mailer wrote about, Norman Mailer wrote about, there was in that crowd a lot of nuns, a lot of young families with baby carriages. There were a lot of really innocent people who had turned against the war and always were against the war, but they, were, they didn't get into publicity like the crazies did. But they were there. In fact, it was the smell of grass, not marijuana grass, but trampled grass is what I most remember from the March of the Pentagon, that smell of a lot of people coming out against the war in a very innocent way. And so I do remember that, and most important about 68, I remember being on campus and feeling that zest. I think young people today, my kids always ask me about the 60s, and I say, well, you missed it. You missed it, because there was nothing like the zest on campus in 68. Almost every guy was facing the draft. We had one more year of grad school. We all knew the draft was waiting for us. Uh, the women, the, the young women who were with us all knew their boyfriends or friends were facing the draft. It was incredibly edgy, and it was great. It was great to be alive, because you were really alive. Mm -hmm. It's a, a strange thing to say. I think Rick knows what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You wanted to be on campus, because that was the center of the consciousness of the universe in those days, as uh, McCartney once said. And I think you wanted to be part of the, it was just something else. And what, but I do think the N.A. war movement turned bad from 68 when it was nuns and young couples with baby carriages. When I got back in the Peace Corps in 71, it was different. It was bitter, it was angry. Everybody from the state colleges had long hair. There was certain baroque, something baroque about it. It wasn't, it wasn't what it was, and it was negative. And I think that's what happened to our country between 68 and 71. It just turned bad. It was a bad atmosphere by then. And of course, Nixon was president by then. That's what it felt like. How about you, Dan? I think most of us knew where you were. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you were, commi you were committing all, journalism. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here today. And I would echo one thing that uh, Chris said, and that is that uh, Lawrence's book, if you haven't read it, mm -hmm. if you want to think about 1968, it's a wonderful place to start and for that matter finish. Uh, in direct answer to your questions, because I know you have a lot of questions, we're going to move along. Uh, one, uh, in terms of where I was physically, uh, in 1968, I was the chief White House correspondent for CBS News. 
uh, reporting primarily for the Walter Cronkite CBS Evening News, but for other programs as well. Uh, in terms of uh, personally, uh, where was I? Uh, I was not fresh back, but it had not been long. It's been almost a year as a combat correspondent in, in Vietnam. Uh, and this is not confession time, but uh, like a lot of people who cover wars and take part in wars, sometimes at night things would go through my head. But I, it wasn't so serious as PTSD or anything like that. Just I had bad dreams about it. And there was a certain surrealistic quality to 1968 for me because of that, that from time to time, like some videotape that just would play in my head uh, about Vietnam during the conventions, during the election, uh, that sort of thing. But I do think, uh, so let's see, that's personally, uh, I was, uh, 37 years old, father with two young children, uh, both of whom were school age, but just barely school age by that time. Uh, politically, uh, I was fiercely independent at that time. I'd been raised in a household in which uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, what, during the 30s and the 40s, was con <coughs> considered the savior of the Constitution, the savior of his party, and in many ways, the savior of capitalism and the savior of the Constitution. But uh, by the late 60s, I had serious questions about what we were being told about the war based on my own experience. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I was an admirer of President Lyndon Johnson for his domestic, you know, tremendous domestic uh, <coughs> achievements. So that's where I was politically. Uh, you ask uh, spiritually and religiously, Christian struggling then as now with what my relationship my God is, and uh, spiritually trying to answer that question of, well, how and for what do I want to be noted when it's all over? <clears throat> so there you are. Mm -hmm. I, was, uh, <clears throat> I was in high school in 1968 and in Boston, and it was uh, my political awakening. We had had uh, kids my age, I was about nine, I guess, when, uh, eight, when JFK won the presidency. Uh, that was a cultural awakening for little boys in Boston. It wasn't really a political awakening. It was the sudden knowledge that, and I have to tell you, it was a surprise because we thought this wasn't possible. But it was the sudden realization that even a Catholic could be president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that we've crossed many barriers and much more important barriers than that since then, and we've had Barack Obama, but when you were a little boy in Boston or anywhere, any little Catholic boy uh, was not told, was not told in first grade that they could grow up to be anything they wanted to be because there was this feeling that there was a wall there and we, and we were not going to get through it. And then we did. And, uh, and then came 68 and I was in high school and I was politicized and I was going to uh, anti-war demonstrations in Boston, and 68 was the first time I got in the car with my brother Kevin and drove down to Washington to a demonstration down there. Uh, Kevin's traveled a long journey since being in SDS, which was a really left uh, uh, liberal group uh, in 1968, to then being a Gene McCarthy volunteer, and to now being a Republican because that's the way America works. Because, uh, your political life is a long one, no matter who you are, and uh, has a lot of turns in it. Uh, and so I watched uh, what was the real drama of 1968 on television, 
as Chris said, the Democratic Convention, uh, which we all watched on television. Dan was there. And one of the things that Dan left out of 1968 for him is that he was on the floor of the convention where Mike Wallace for CBS and Dan for CBS were actually in the middle of brawl <clears throat> and getting knocked over and punches thrown. And we're watching it. We're at home so watching true. this on TV. So uh, when, when people like Chris and I <clears throat> talk about how boring conventions are now, please understand, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> we haven't seen a punch thrown since 1968 at a convention. Uh, and so it, it was, there was a, a wildness to it. Everything in the culture was moving and shaking and cracking as if there was an earthquake under everything, from politics to music to consumption. Parents in 1960, in 1960 were worried, you know, that the boys, girls might drink too much at the prom. By 68, they were worried about drugs. They were worried about marijuana. They were worried about things they didn't understand. They were hearing about what is LSD. They were worried about some people cocaine. It was, it was all hit <clears throat> all at once. Clothing changed overnight, overnight. The college I went to in 1966, when I wasn't there, you had to dress like this to get into a classroom or to be fed. By 1968, it looked like Woodstock. It was just this hippie festival, and all the dress codes were gone. And, and so that the society uh, beyond our politics was just rolling and rocking with, with surprises that no one saw coming. And, uh, and, and under it all, and Chris has referred to this, was a grimness and a fear that the country has not felt since the Vietnam War, actually since Richard Nixon ended the draft during the Vietnam War. Because that draft card in your pocket, which I did not yet have in 68 because I was in high school, that draft card in your pocket might be the thing that gets you killed. You might be drafted, you might be sent to Vietnam against your will, and you might never come back. And if it wasn't you, it was your boyfriend, or your son, or your cousin, or your uncle. It was someone, there wouldn't be a person in this room, not one person in this room in 1968, who did not feel that threat. And of course, there was, as there always has been in America, the community that didn't think that was a threat, but thought it was a duty. Lucy's husband. The, uh, the president had two sons-in-law in Vietnam. John Kerry thought it was a duty. Never crossed his mind when he got out of Yale that he wasn't going to go right in and go to what was his war. Uh, and, and so that also was present. Uh, and that was in flux, that, that feeling was in flux. And you can feel, you can, even when you talk about it, you can feel the tension between those two approaches to that. And that was brand new because when I was a little boy and when and Chris was a little boy going to movies, it was every war movie, the soldiers, those American soldiers were the hero and you wanted to be one of them. And the notion when I was 12 or 14 or 15 or even 16, that by the time I was 17, I would look at that movie and say, the one thing I never want to do is be in that war with that gun aiming it at anyone. That's such a gigantic culture change that happened at an incredible high speed 
that the likes of which this culture had, had never really seen uh, on the popular culture level, the spiritual uh, level of, of the way people shared the experience of being American, all of that was up for grabs, all of that was changing. But for 16,800 families in America, it was the very last time they saw that member of the family who they lost in Vietnam. And 1968 was the first time I went to a military funeral. My cousin Johnny was killed a year after he graduated from West Point in Vietnam. And I saw a general's cry for the first time. And that, that was a world that we have left behind. That, we've moved into something that is much better than that. Everything that was bad about 1968 is behind us. And we, we have new problems because life always has new problems. But everything that was bad about 1968, we actually conquered. And we conquered through citizenship expressed in protest, mostly, and in governance, and in politicians, and the people in government changing their minds about where we should go and how we should deal with what was happening in Southeast Asia. And America learned a lot, painfully, and for many people, not quickly enough. Uh, and that's part of what Chris is talking about in the mood change he felt between 68 and, say, 72. Uh, because you're continuing to watch tens of thousands of Americans you know get killed every year in Vietnam, it's very hard to keep the same kind of respectful protest tone that you might have started with that those kids who went up to New Hampshire in 1968 started with. They got clean for Gene. My brother Kevin shaved his beard, shaved his long hair, put on a necktie, rang doorbells in New Hampshire to try to elect Gene McCarthy, to try to stop that war, to try to take that threat away that everyone was feeling, that if this keeps going, we could all lose someone. And we can be very glad that we live in a country where that feeling is gone. Mm -hmm. Well, my, I was 25 in 1968, and of course I was against the war. Uh, everybody I knew was against the war, and I was facing the draft. But I, I did not want to go to Canada because the United States is my country, and I did not want to go to jail because although I had strong convictions, I don't think they, I, I suspected that they might be, not be strong enough to carry me through that experience of prison. So I ended up in, a, in, the, in the Navy at Officer Candidate School and then at a cushy, no-show, essentially no-show office job in Lower Manhattan with an admiral. I was a speechwriter for an admiral who was painfully shy and hated to give speeches. <laughs> and when he did give a speech, it, it was always a defense of the United Nations. So I didn't have a lot of conscience problems there. And I was working uh, sometimes in the afternoon and the evening as a volunteer for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign and at the War Resisters League. So I didn't have... Um, I kind of got out of it clean in the sense that I finally did decide that I was a conscientious objector, that I didn't want to obey any more orders, and I filed for that status. And 
I was pretty sure that then I got orders to Vietnam. And I was not going to go. So in preparing myself, and this, doesn't, this may sound a little braver than it was, because uh, I thought of being arrested, being a, I, I was going to be an anti-war hero. You know, I was going to be one of the boys that the girls said no to. Um, and, I, and in preparation for going, I talked with an enlisted man in my office who had been a guard or had worked at Portsmouth Naval Prison. And he told me, it's not that bad if you're an officer, but if you have any dental work to get done, do it now. Don't do it at, at Portsmouth Naval Prison. So I did. I got a tooth pulled. It wouldn't stop bleeding. It turned out I had a minor form of hemophilia, and I was out. <laughs> now, <clears throat> Lucy, I want to ask you in, something in view of what the rest of us have said. Did you have your opinions about the war? How did you feel about the war, apart from being a daughter, as well as being a well, daughter? Well, I'm very grateful that you gave me this opportunity to speak to that, because uh, I'm sure, just as every gentleman that's up here, for every story you tell, there are 10 more that you may think, oh my gosh, that might have been more impactful. And, and uh, two that, that I would like to speak to is um, what it was like to lie in bed at night, not knowing if your husband or your brother-in-law was alive or dead. And the last thing you heard before you went to sleep was, hey, hey, LBJ, how many boys did you kill today? And you knew darn well that this was tearing your father absolutely apart. And it was tearing our family absolutely apart. Or what it was like when my father told me, <clears throat> finally, I think sometime over the Christmas holiday, that um, he was going to announce at the State of the Union that he wasn't going to run. Uh, his health was failing. He'd had a heart attack uh, uh, when he was 47 uh, on my ninth birthday. And talk about conflict. I had 104 and couldn't have a birthday party, and, my, and, and Daddy's having a heart attack. Those are the sort of things that uh, a lot of uh, congressional women face uh, as, uh, as wives and mothers. And so we had lived under that umbrella of not knowing how long my father had to live. And every male member of his family had died before their 65th birthday. And Daddy was scared, desperately scared, that all the pressure, by the way, he was told not to take a job with any pressure. And, and so he went on to continue as majority leader and vice president and president. Uh, and, and, and so he knew the risks were great that we could have two presidents die back to back in office, and he just thought that that was too much to ask of the American people. So that weighed on him. And he told me that he thought he would make the announcement then. Well, at that point, I was thinking as a, 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 a mother and a, 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 and a daughter, I wanted my 
son to know his grandfather. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to live. I wanted him to come home and be near us. But the closer it got to my husband's day of deployment in April of 68, the more I began to evolve and look that this man was my commander in chief and he was somebody I knew and somebody I trusted and I somebody I knew was desperately trying to honorably get us out of that war and that's where my faith was. Well, the um, State of the Union speech came and went and he never said a word about it. And so I kind of thought, whew, uh, we've dodged that bullet, it's, it's not gonna happen. And uh, then as March 31st approached, I was in Washington, D.C., living with him because my former husband was going to be deployed on April the 11th. And so we, we went to, to D.C. to be with his former unit there. And, and talk about conflict. Everybody who was in the unit with my former husband who wanted to go to Vietnam was scared they weren't going to go to Vietnam because he was in the unit. And everybody who didn't want to go to Vietnam was sure they were going to go, in the, uh, uh, go to Vietnam because they were in the unit. So you, you, you couldn't find any, any peace even, even there over that. And my father came uh, uh, and we went to St. Dominic's Church to get together, the little uh, Roman Catholic uh, um, Dominican church in Southwest uh, Washington. And on the way home in the car, he told my former husband and me that he was going to announce that night that he wasn't gonna run. And it just took my breath away because I was so fearful of what my husband was going to be going into and my father was leaving and my world was in a total upheaval. And so I started to say to my daddy, uh, Daddy, are you sure you need to do this? And I think he thought, by God, you were on my side. You were saying, I, 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 I should leave, I should come home. And all of a sudden, uh, my position was changing. And I think that was happening in so many families. You, you, from one perspective, you felt one thing, and from another perspective, you felt another thing, and the bottom line is what you felt most of all was that you just had no control over anything. So we went down to make the announcement, and um, he had had some good friends, the Krems there, the debate going, and, and Horace Busby was there who, who helped draft the words. And you know, we knew this was coming, but we'd known it was coming in January, and it didn't come. And so my father gave his, his speech that night, expressing his hopes and dreams to get us to the peace table. And he hesitated. And I thought the hesitation meant that he was going to close and, and, and that was going to be it. And then of course, when he began to speak again, we realized that the decision had been made. And as he spoke, I felt I literally could see the weight of the world lifting off of his shoulders. So that part of me who loved him and wanted him home and wanted him to be able to be there for my son and for me was, was comforted in that part of me that was scared silly about the fact that my husband was about to go to war, was terrified. 
it was such a traumatizing time for all of us. But if I had the chance to let the world know how much Lyndon Johnson did not want that war, how much he wanted to bring all the men and women home safely. That would mean the world to me because that's how strongly he felt. And when he came home, he grew his hair long. Yeah. And, he, and, and he said to anybody who would listen, I wanted them to know I hated it too because it was affecting his domestic policy so very much and pulling our people apart, which was the last thing in the world that he wanted. Uh, but but our job was to be strong, and so we tried to be. Well, thank you, thank you, Lucy. It's, it's, extraordinarily moving to hear this from you. You know, we were, the, many of the rest of us, when he said the last line of that speech, I was living in Sheridan Square, and people burst into the streets, and there was literally dancing in the streets. And to hear, to hear, the, to hear what you were suffering through all this is, but he wanted peace so badly for you and all your fellow yeah. uh, young people who were in such crisis. He wanted healing for all of us. And if giving up his political life, which was in so many ways his very life, <clears throat> it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was worth it to him. He knew that he had done what he could do. And he told me, he said, sometimes, Lucy Baines, you've just become the lightning rod. And if somebody else comes right behind you and says and done, it does exactly the same things, they may be able to make it happen. But the world is such because of what you've said and done, you're the messenger. And it's just not, the message just isn't gonna fly. Can I, can I just say something about what, I, I'm gonna remember for the rest of my life many, many things that I just heard from Lucy, but. There's a phrase in the middle of it all that really stunned me, and that is that you, as the daughter of the President of the United States, felt that you couldn't control anything, that everything was out of control. And that is exactly what those protesters out there, outside the White House, who you could hear every night when you were trying to go to sleep, who your father could hear every night, that is what they were feeling, that is what drove them there, is that they had no control over anything. And to, the, the idea to, to realize that within the White House, you, were, you had that same feeling is a truly extraordinary demonstration about, their, about how human beings always, somewhere, have something in common. Some feeling is in common somewhere. Do you know how my father face started that day? My father started that day at dawn when his little girl, his firstborn, the one that was named after him, came home from Camp Pendleton where she had just said goodbye to her husband. She was three months pregnant. She had morning sickness big time. She came in, she was tear stained. He met her like a loving father would. 
Uh, he put his arms around her, and he realized as a father, he couldn't control her tears. He couldn't make them go away. And so I think he ultimately, that, that really gave him a lot of the strength to make the decision he did that night mm -hmm. because he knew that, by God, if, if I haven't gotten us to the peace table, maybe, just maybe, if I get myself out of the campaign and I do use every moment I have to try to advance the cause of peace, maybe I can help all the Lindas in the world get their husbands back too. Mm. We are going to take some questions if people have them. I think we have microphones on, on both sides. Is that right? So if you want to ask a question, come on, come on uh, and get behind one of them, and we'll get to you shortly. I want to, I want to <clears throat> bring us forward 50 years. Um, because right now, certainly 1968 was a time when, this, when the country felt as divided as it ever had since the 1860s, really. And are we in another moment like that now? And how would you, how would you compare 68 to, to, to 2018? Um, what, what do you think, are there similarities? Are there differences? Um, did you ex could you have imagined that this is where we would be in 50 years in 1968? Anybody? Well, there's certainly a lot of similarities between the way many people feel today and the way many people felt in 1968. Uh, what has been referred to variously on the panel is that growing sense through 1968, and it was building from the time, you know, early in the year there was the so-called Czechoslovakian Spring, a rebellion in Czechoslovakia, which is frequently underestimated for its effect on the 1968 as a whole. Uh, the Pueblo was seized, a U.S. warship was seized off the coast of North Korea and the crew taking captive, and then the cataclysmic event of the Tet Offensive, all of that happened just in the month of January. Mm. So then by the time you build the time that President Johnson said, pulled himself out of the race in March, that just happened in March, then boom, and literally boom, Martin Luther King killed in April. Then in June, lo, lo and behold, can you believe Robert Kennedy is assassinated? Then you had the two really cataclysmic uh, conventions. The Democratic Convention in 1968, presidential convention, uh, gets most of the attention. But the Republican Convention uh, was seesaw whether Richard Nixon could get the nomination. A new popular man on the scene, Ronald Reagan, came with that close mm -hmm. to making it a battle on the floor. But at any rate, so by the time we got through, through the summer, and mind you, there had been race riots in the streets, the likes of which we have not seen since that time. There's been sort of a glossing over that, particularly in the wake of Dr. King's death. The reason I'm citing all this, that increasingly as the year went by, there was this fielding, a growing sense that as some poet once said, things are in the saddle, the center cannot hold. Mm -hmm. And the critical question through the whole year was, was would some, some center of, of what we believe most in the United States hold. 
would the institutions hold? Now, these are similar to questions that we're going through today. And then you had the election in which in 1968, and political scientists may want to argue with me, but I would say in 1968 that the Democratic Party with its nominee was perceived by many people as moving farther to the left. And that the Republican Party was perceived as moving farther to the right. Now, you say it's really hard to get the right of go order, but anyway, that was it. Uh, this, this sense, so there's similar sense now of things are in the saddle, the center can't hold where our institutions set up. But let's remark that we're now in the second decade of the 21st century. 1968, a long time ago, we were a different country demographically and in many ways culturally in 1968. So I just caution about drawing too many parallels. We can hope for one parallel, that while all this was going on in 1968, we were racing to the moon. We were sending astronauts fire to the moon in Norman Mailer's hand. And 1968 ended with Apollo 8 circling the moon for the first time, which was something for the country to hold on to. We can hope we get something similar this year. Mm. Yeah. Anything you want to throw in, or should we let's go to the audience and hear what yeah, you've got to all, ask? Well, Please well, sit. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? No. Yeah. Well, I think all, all, all of us who grew up in a segregated Texas can only really appreciate the great gift of LBJ and the great courage he had in getting rid of that diabolical monster that had encompassed us since the Civil War. And I think. Uh, we should always be indebted to him, to him for that. Yes. Now, looking at this crowd, I don't know there's very many, but I was in an active combat unit of an assault helicopter company in the Central Highlands uh, in 1968. And... Uh, Thank you for your service. Uh, one of the things I remember the most is when I got there, there are 350 men, there's a combat street of an assault helicopter company. There were 350 men, there was one other beside myself that had a college degree. And he was killed shortly after I got there. So we were being served by mainly poor racial minority kids from the South with a poor education. My commander only went to the 11th grade. And uh, it, it really seemed to me, I don't know if it seems to you that way, but when I came back, the real protest of Vietnam started when they finally instituted uh, a lottery system, which exposed everybody, even the middle class kids, to having to go to Vietnam. Maybe I uh, overestimated that, but it, it seemed to me that had a string, strong role in it. And do you think, it has its role today in that we don't have mandatory public service or mandatory military. It doesn't have to be military, but we, uh, the only people that are at risk in our wars are the ones that are uh, so-called volunteers. Well, I, I, think, I, I have to disagree with you about the effect of the lottery. I think the effect of the lottery was to assure 
uh, 80 or 85 percent of the young men that they didn't have to, anything to worry about. And so it really put a damper on the, on the passion of the anti-war movement. But it wasn't true in 68. It, it became effective in 69. Yes. It so passed that, in 68. And that's and, when... And, and that's, <laughs> of course, when everybody started crying a little louder. And uh, I, I just wonder if we were in this constant war state we are today, if it would uh, continue. Uh, if if uh, we were, all our sons were exposed <coughs> to this uh, awful uh, exposure of life and risk of life. And I've often wondered, uh, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I do belabor it, uh, how many college graduates are on that wall yeah. up yeah. there? I know a lot of them, but I only know one that graduated from college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got an opinion. How about everybody who writes an op-ed piece encouraging the next war is eligible for the draft? Yeah, How about yeah. that? How about the neocons have to serve in combat that have a lot less op-ed writing? The op-ed pages of the major newspaper are filled with armchair generals who are pushing us into the next war like the next Pez dispenser. They've always got a war they want next. Right now it's Iran. It was Iraq. It was Syria. It was Libya. They love this stuff. They want more and more and more of it. And they never go in the military. And that's the problem. To say nothing of the President of the United States and his five bone spurs. And our, both of my father's sons-in-law, the only member of my family that, that was male, that didn't go my other brother-in-law besides Chuck went also. So th that was all the men we had, except my little Lyndon. And he was 18 months old, so he got a hall pass because of his age. <laughs> but he served, and I can assure you he served just like every other military family in the world serves when their mama or daddy goes away to war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Hi, my name is Emily. I'm actually a high school U.S. history teacher here in Austin. So Thank I'm you. curious when I'm teaching teenagers who were born in 2002 about the 1960s, like what y'all think would be something that you wish young people today knew about that time period? Uh, could you repeat the last part? Of your yeah, question? so teaching teenagers who were born in 2002, what do you think is the most important thing that I teach them about the 1960s? Connection. Challenge your parents. <laughs> we feel like that. <laughs> but it was a time, whether you were on the far left or on the far right, you were involved, people cared, people listened. Um, it was a, a time where um, our direct, everybody had an opinion and nobody was apathetic. Right. And, right. and, and I think the one thing, um, uh, just as it has so often been said, that the uh, opposite of love is not hate, it's Apathy. I think that that applies to the the national uh, climate as well. Yeah. Uh, apathy is the one thing that none of us can afford. And if you could encourage them to understand that, uh, boy, a lot of young people in in '68, I can assure you, to change the world. 
a lot of young people getting out there and voting today can if they will. The vast majority of life is just showing up. <laughs> you know, uh, the day that the Allies uh, uh, forced the, uh, and the, some of the free French forced the uh, Nazis out of Paris, 44, there were people who were lined along the Seine River sunbathing. Not everybody's interested. Hmm. It's astounding, but the fact is, and you people are here because you're interested. And I, I've been watching his speeches. Yeah. Uh, I, I know. I think it's largely progressive, this crowd. What do you think? <laughs> Just a little bit. I teach at Texas State University, and so I see the statue of your father, Lucy, every day when I go into my building. And I can't tell you how many students I see grasp his hand uh, they've heard that it's going to give them good luck on their exams, but I think some of them just, <laughs> they just, they just want to uh, have that connection. So that's what he's remembered for now much more than the war in Vietnam uh, on our campus. Um, I was in demonstrations at Indiana University, uh, the invasion of Cambodia. In fact, it's how I met my husband who had just gotten back from Vietnam. And two-thirds of the campus at Indiana University went on strike at that point. And now today, I, I teach and I wonder what it would take to get two-thirds of our students to go on strike for anything. And I believe that we had a sense of optimism that was just uh, un unimaginable today. And when you mentioned uh, that there was this sense of being part of something important, how can we get young people today to believe in themselves? We believed we were going to change the world, that we could stop the war, that we could make a huge difference in society. How do we imbue those attitudes in people today? Thank you. Well, you know, I think we have always have to recognize that we are always sending a representative sample out there for us. So, you know, the, when the biggest protest uh, hit Washington of 100,000 people, that didn't mean it was 100,000 people who wanted to be there. That meant there were tens of millions of people who wanted to be there, but you wouldn't know it unless you asked that guy who was pumping gas in Wyoming that day. And, would have, would have been there if he could. And so we all have to recognize that it, it's a representative government and we, and we express our citizenship the same way. And we saw two women stand in a Senate elevator yesterday. Yes. And that was not, that was not two women standing at that elevator mm. door, and that was 100 million people. <laughs> and so I don't think that the people who weren't at the elevator are apathetic. I think there's a million reasons why they couldn't get there, but this country always sends that representative sample. Yeah. Mm. 
And I will tell you, I, I was part of the Women's March here in Texas. Mm -hmm. So not just was, these marches were not just taking place, as we all yep. know, in Washington, D.C. They are, are in New York City or Los Angeles. They were taking place all over mm -hmm. this country. And if you were there, and they were taking a place with generations. I mean, I, taught, I brought my grandchildren. And uh, if you were there, I think there was a sense of maybe some of that that we had in the 60s. Yeah, we, Maybe we can. Mm -hmm. and if, but if we're not here, we won't. Mm -hmm. We have to show up. Yeah. No, I saw, I saw the march, that, the first one, the first Women's March uh, in New York City. Um, and I had never been to a, a Vietnam protest in New York City. I'd been to them in Boston and Washington. But that was the closest feeling I had to 1968 since 1968. And I think it was the, the largest, because it was in so many cities, I think it was the largest demonstration in the history of the country. L largest in history by an order of magnitude that's hard to imagine. The very first, very first inauguration protest we ever had mm. was 1969, was Richard Nixon's inauguration. 10,000 people uh, hovered around Washington somewhere. The next inauguration protest we had was Richard Nixon's second inauguration. <laughs> 100,000 people, and then we did not do it again. We did not do it again until 2016, and, and we saw over a million people in Washington alone. I mean, when, when they had a number coming out of Boston, I remember we were covering it live, and I was getting a number out of Boston about 12 noon of 300,000 people. And, I, and as soon as I heard that number, I, I instantly declared uh, on TV that this, this is now the biggest inauguration protest we've ever seen. Uh, and it was already that just in Boston alone. Mm -hmm. so, so when we think about apathy and we think about why are they sitting on the sofa and why aren't they getting out there, let's just remember, we've seen the biggest single outpouring of citizens to the street in the history of the country just in this presidency. I'm also here from San Marcos. I'm a reporter for the Daily Record there, and your dad has his own museum. We love him there. So <laughs> um, my question is mostly for Mr. Rather. Um, how would you compare the way the media is being treated by the authorities today compared to what it was like in 1968? I haven't had any, I haven't Great seen anybody question. getting punched in the stomach yet, but it's, it's getting a little rough out there. It's how, did, how do you think the media is being treated now compared to 1968, basically the Trump attacks? The well, thanks for the question, and um, I apologize. Uh, I don't hear as well as I once did, and, he volunteered to help me out. <laughs> well, this is one of the, the, the major areas of differences. Earlier when I said there are similarities between what we're going through now and 1968, 1968, arguably one of, if not the most tumultuous single years in the history of the country in many ways. But keep in mind that what, what we had in 1968, television had just, but only just barely reached the stage where it permeated nearly every household in the country. The whole idea of seeing things on television, like the Democratic National Convention, like uh, race riots, was, was unheard of. So 
that this tumultuous time of 1968 coincided with people being able to see things in real time. Not just politicians making speeches, but you know, part of what television we learn does best, it, it has many shortcomings, depth and perspective, context among them. But television is that magic carpet can take you there. So throughout the year, if there's a race riot, you, you went via television. You saw it right in your living room. Same thing with the Vietnam War, that increasingly the technology had gotten smaller and the places you could get with te a television camera in the war got better. So all of this kind of came together. And people, here's the point, the, the, the idea of a true mass media that could reach every household in the country in a very personal way uh, was new. It's no longer new now. Among the other differences, was that most journalists in those days had a deadline once a day. If you were in the magazine business, you maybe had it once a month. And if you were in radio, maybe you had it you know, twice a day. That's 1968. And there was a kind of what I would call a national hearth mm -hmm. for a, an agreed consensus mm -hmm. on what reality was and what was, was the most important things of the day. And that was the CBS Evening News, the NBC Nightly News, ABC was still in his life. But that, most people began going away from newspapers and going to television with some version of that national hearth. Now, you, difference today, here in 2018, your average journalist has a deadline every nanosecond as opposed to once a day or twice a day. I mean, you've got to file for your main program or the paper, but you have to blog, you have to tweet, you have to be on Facebook. You have to answer rockets from the home office. Can you match Chris Matthews? He's on ravings about something we know nothing about. Can you? <laughs> no, can, no, can you match it? That's the reality, and that's, that's a tremendous difference. And I would argue that there is no, not any longer, and this is not to criticize anybody's evening or nightly news, which is not in me to do that, but the national hearth that I spoke about, where everybody could kind of gather around one consensus fire of this is the reality and the most important things of the day has disappeared and fragmented. So you're dealing in a completely different, <coughs> different environment. Mm -hmm. Would you say it's harder to get information from officials now than it was 50 <coughs> years ago? Do you think it's hard The leaks out of the White House are uh, hard to titanic. Get from the White House. I, every time I raise the question with the reporters that come on hardball, yeah. I go, is, is it tightening up at the White House because of this latest embarrassment for the president? They laugh at me. I've never seen such uh, <clears throat> unending disloyalty to a president. They don't have any loyalty to the guy. They, they're, they're putting out stuff that hurts him every day. It's astounding. I've never, it's an incohesive White House. I've never seen it like this. There's, no, there's nothing there in terms of uh, being something that's united. So that's good for journalism. <laughs> Might be bad for the country. Let me just tag on to saying that uh, whatever one thinks or doesn't think about uh, President Johnson and his administration, <clears throat> near the end, when it was the toughest, President Johnson had one of, if not the best, White House press secretaries uh, in the history of press <laughs> A man named George Christian, who's uh, the late George Christian, buried not far here. But it, it, it helps answer your question. George Christian was really dedicated to never telling a reporter anything that he didn't, wasn't able to confirm of his own first-hand knowledge. Now you compare that with what's followed on in the, during the Nixon administration for one, and certainly during the Trump administration, 
a tremendous chasm between those two attitudes about what, what the White House press secretary should do. That George Christian and his predecessors were trying to be uh, honest brokers of, of, of information. Now, they also, granted, they wanted to ladle out some information and just assume <clears throat> not the other. But it's a great deal of difference. And George Christian and his predecessors, and, and Pierre Salinger, who was President Kennedy's press secretary, a little more colorful character. But when he came out, he wanted to be certain within himself that he didn't say, say anything to that roster that wasn't, to his real and personal knowledge, absolutely true. Today, they're like uh, defense attorneys in criminal cases. They tell you the client's uh, statement. They convey it, knowing the client's guilty. They convey the client's account. That's what Sarah does and says that's what she does. Uh, Dan, I'd like to add that one thing that might be interesting that people don't know in terms of 68 is that my father's mother was a journalist. My father's wife was a journalist. My father frequently said, you cannot live with them and you cannot live without them. And so he knew many journalists on a very personal basis. And when the ticker tapes would come, he had a giant ticker tape machine in his office. And when the ticker tape would, would, uh, story would be filed uh, on the wire, my father would be down in the bowels of the machine, pulling it out, looking at it, uh, either feeling comforted by it or taking umbrage with it and getting on the phone immediately and calling the reporter himself and saying, you know, but this isn't fair because of this, this, and this. Or did you ever think about X, Y, and Z? And so that there were a lot of interpersonal, caring, friendly relations. Now, don't get me wrong, did not that they didn't get uh, uh, estranged at times, uh, uh, as family, so to speak, do. But my father said, you know, you'd have to fight to the death for, your, uh, for their right to be able to express themselves, a belief in, in First Amendment uh, it was, was what was prevailing, even though it made him unhappy sometimes, very unhappy sometimes. Uh, but uh, I think that that's a, a different perspective about 68. Yeah, I just want to underscore something, what, what Dan was saying about that there was a consensus of what reality was, and now you have to be forgiving. You have to be kind of forgiving of Trump supporters, if I may say. If you, if you get your news from Fox News and conservative talk radio, you don't know what's going on. And so it's not so surprising that you have the opinions you have. So that leads me to my question. Um, I was in junior high during 1968, and the only news we knew was from Dan Rather or Walter Cronkite, exactly what we were saying. There was, that was the truth. Everybody believed that was the truth. And the television went off at 10 o'clock at night and the national anthem played and there was no more news. That was it. So those of you that are way too young for that don't understand it. But that was it. That was the reality. Today with all the different sources, and I watch the people on this stage. That's, those are my people. But sometimes I switch to other channels just to see what they're saying. And it's an alternate reality. And we are never going to get those two realities 
to come to the same place if people just keep watching their own reality. So my question is, in this world of such a diverse view, and I have friends, I could talk, and I'm a pretty good debater, and I could debate till the day I die, and they won't change their mind, because they're only hearing this story. So in this day of divisiveness, and even in our news reporting, we have bias. <clears throat> How do we bring the dialogue together, where people will talk to each other and not vilify each other? We, we, I think we have, we have room for one very, very short, really short question or point. I was... Answer. Well, my answer is really short. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? I think you have to put your own stew together. I think you can't ask Uncle Walter to say that's the way it is anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that was probably patriarchal to begin with. And I think, uh, mm -hmm. I think that, uh, look, if you read the Times, I agree with Lawrence, the Times is unbelievable. There's no newspaper available on the planet like the New York Times. And they have a point of view, not just on the editorial page, they have a point of view. And uh, in the journal, pretty damn solid newspaper, the Wall Street Journal. And it, I think you got to put it together. Listen to NPR. Listen to the, the major newspapers. And, well, we are on television later at night and starting at 7. I think it's fair to say that we're very much like, although we do the news, we also offer what we used to get in the afternoon newspaper, the, New York, the Washington Star, for example, the Philadelphia Bulletin, which I grew up with. People would be riding home in the train, mostly men, and they'd all be reading the bulletin because the bulletin had all the opinion pages in it. Great, great op-ed pages, all the major columnists. And you got the opinion that way in the old day. Now you get it at night as well to the news. So put it together. Even Fox has a couple journalists, you know. They do. They have some journalists, Mike and uh, Mike Wallace and Brett and uh, Shep. You can get some news from those guys. They're straight reporters in many ways. They get the influences on them, but I think I think you watch us for news and analysis and opinion. And I think, I think Lawrence and I, we all try to do the same news, analysis, and an opinion. And that's why people, they want to know what we think. They're not just turning it on to know what time it is. They want to know what we think. And that's why we, we get checked in with. And Rachel is fantastic at that. Hmm. She gives an opening announcement of her point of view, which she's written down. Everything's written, highly thoughtful through the day, all day to get that right. And, and you know what she thinks at, at, at uh, 920. And I, I think that's the way it's news, analysis, and opinion. You get it all. But you, in the end, have to desegregate it all. You've got to disintegrate. What's the right word? Uh, take it apart. Unpack, to use the new phrase. And I think grown-up people can unpack it. I don't feel like they don't know where Rachel's coming from. They don't know where uh, Tucker, whatever his name is, is coming from. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they know what Sean's up to, his buddy. And they, they know that. They want that. That's that you keep acting like they're being force-fed like gooses. They want to hear the Trump point of view because 90% of the Republican Party does what they're told. And they want to be told what to do. We're with you, now tell us what we should believe. That's what they do in the Republican Party. It's not like the old Republican Party. It's not like it was we grew up with. Today, the Republican Party's in lockstep with the president, goose-stepping, if you will, 90%. 90% with them, and that's what they want to be told. They want their marching orders. It's not about even their opinion. They want to be told what to think. That's a thought. 
I'm sorry, sir. You're going to have to come and ask your question to us in person because we're, we're I was a Marine in 68. My brother was a Marine in 68 and 69. My uncle was a Marine. My dad was a Navy captain in the Gulf of Tonkin in 63. Thank you. And we have talked for an hour without mentioning the people, the million people in Southeast Asia who were killed by our troops. And nobody was in the Gulf of Tonkin that attacked the United States. Where's our answer to that? Well, we'll all have to think about that ourselves because we've come to the end of our time. And I want to thank this wonderful panel and all of you for coming to this. <laughs> That was 1968, a conversation about one of the most tumultuous political years in modern American history, recorded live at Austin's Central Presbyterian Church as part of the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with the Texas Tribune. Visit texastribune.org events for more information about our public interviews. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, please be sure to rate us as awesome on iTunes. Until next time, this is Evan Smith.